And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today we remember one of the most honored and respected actors in recent years, Alan Arkin, who died on June 29th at the age of 89. Alan Arkin's career, which spanned seven decades, garnered him an Oscar, a Tony, a Golden Globe, and six Emmy nominations. I was privileged to interview Mr. Arkin back in 2011 upon the publication of his fascinating memoir, An Improvised Life. We are replaying that interview today in his memory. I am thrilled and honored. In fact, that doesn't begin to adequately express how privileged I feel to be, speaking f- <laughs> to be speaking for the next few minutes with a much-admired actor, director, writer, Alan Arkin, uh, a winner of the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Little Miss Sunshine, with marvelous performances in other films like Catch-22, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, a Tony Award winner for Enter Laughing, a much-admired writer as well, and the author of a really uh, impressive and fascinating new memoir called an improvised life in which Alan Arkin shares with us some, some very important moments from his own life and his career and the many facets of his career. And uh, along the way really gets us thinking about uh, the, the human condition for that matter and the role which something like theater can play in, in one's life and in sort of getting you connected to your own humanity and uh, the means by which we can ultimately let go of it all and uh, and achieve uh, maybe our, our most Im- Im- impressive and, and important success as, as, as actors and in uh, whatever our endeavors might be. There is a lot to be found in this wonderful memoir, which is in paperback from Doc Koppel Press. And I am delighted to have a few minutes to speak with Alan Arkin about his wonderful book, again called An Improvised Life. Mr. Arkin, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. I think I better shut up after that introduction. That was uh, all I could do. It's just going to be downhill. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for saying so. I wonder if I could just uh, begin by asking you something about uh, an interesting observation you make about what the fame is uh, when one is uh, an actor versus a writer and how you have experienced that in very different ways. That is, the devotion and admiration of movie fans versus the uh, admiration of those who have read your books and enjoyed them and and how different that is. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what to attribute it to, except that I think that movie, in parentheses, movies, and not 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 uh, in big letters, movie stars or even movie actors are given some kind of position in in this society that I don't know if they really deserve. Uh, it's look we're looked upon as uh, as uh, people that have everything anybody could ever want, hope to want. It, it's not looked upon as work, really. Uh, uh, people are, are kind of shocked and sometimes dismayed when I when I talk about how hard the work actually is, um, and and it is often very 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 uh, very very difficult. But there, there, there's something about it. No, everybody. I think everybody slightly feels as if we're really living the lives we're pretending to be living. I talk about that a little bit towards the end of the book as well. When, in that, that fake dialogue with the Martian. 
<laughs> yes, uh, the one by, uh, talking to someone who's imitating a human. Um, yeah, the Martian asks. Uh, I, I there's a little trick I use that I learned from a, a friend of mine who does dream research, dream work. Uh, when when you come up with a dream that has symbols in it that she finds uh, to be arresting, she asks you as if she's a Martian. Would I explain what that what that symbol means to you, or uh, explain that symbol to me? And it's a technique I started using in life a lot. Uh, it brings you descriptions of things down to very very basic ideas, and you can interpret them a little more easily. So, but so periodically, I just I just uh, invoke that Martian and explain things to him about human con- the human condition. And the more I do, it, the funnier it gets. Mm. Uh, like he says, "What is what are those things on your on the top of your head? Uh, what well, we call it hair? So it has any use? Not really. But at the same time, we spend billions billions of dollars every year making it look better. He it- says, "For what reason?" I <laughs> say. And I possibly tell you. <laughs> it does kind of get you re-examining things, doesn't it? Yeah. You write at one point, it's as if what we do on screen or in the theater isn't work at all, but rather some fairy tale imagined existence, and part of our job is to impart our secret and magical life to anyone who can get close enough to ask. I wonder if, by contrast, you could tell me, uh, since I think... The, yeah, the, uh, the, the movie fans... Tend to want things from you. I was sitting in a restaurant the other day. This doesn't happen very often. In fact, it's never happened before. Uh, I was sitting in a restaurant, and a lady, middle-aged lady, looks at me. She says, uh, "Alan Arkin." I said, "Yes," and she looked vaguely familiar. And she comes up and gives me a huge hug, and she said, "What are you doing here?" And I start to tell her, and then I realized she didn't, she didn't have a clue what it was. She didn't. I, I didn't. I mean, I didn't have a clue who she was. Um, we'd never met before, but she just felt that it was okay to come up and give, and give me a hug for about ten seconds. Huh. Uh, and I ran the other way afterwards as fast as I could. Now, tell us what kind of satisfaction you receive uh, as a writer versus as an actor. Well, uh, first of all, I don't mean to imply that all all in quotes fans are like that. So, I mean, there's some. There have been some wonderful encounters with people over the years, uh, people who uh, are, some, are respectful and recognize that I'm doing a, uh, a piece of work. But uh, by and large, it's, uh, there's an enormous amount of give me. You have everything, so now you owe me. Uh, with, with books, the books I've written, I found that if I get fan mail, it's always thank yous that I've that uh, I've given people something, and they don't want anything back from me. Uh, it, it, it's a very arresting difference. Can you also tell us what writing sort of gives to you? I mean, the, in what way it, it feels your, fills your soul or feeds your soul or gives you satisfaction that might be maybe a different sort of satisfaction or fulfillment that you get from the great work you do as, a, as an actor and director? Uh, is this uh, a profoundly different experience for you personally in terms of oh, what yeah. it gives you? In, in, immeasurably different. Um, it, uh, you can't get things off your chest when you're an actor, particularly, except uh, unless you have a, a need to express a lot of emotions that you're shy about in your life. Uh, you, you, know, you tend not to be able to get ideas off your chest. Um, emotional ideas, yeah, but not, not uh, intellectual ideas. Uh, and with writing, of course, you you can say and do anything you want. There's nobody to just 
I, I, you know, I have to say, I, I, I have nine books to my credit, but I have never considered myself a writer. Uh, I, I, to me, a writer is somebody with a craft, somebody who can sit down and do it every day and uh, rewrite and, uh, and work on things. I can't do that. I, I can only write if something is, is pressing on me. It's like, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like I know this is a kind of a, a, a strange analogy, but it's like having a boil and puncturing it. <laughs> it's not very elegant, but it's what it feels like. I only write one. I can only write when I have something that's pressing on me and it's got to come out. Wow! And uh, and uh, and that's that's it. That's that's my writing. Before we, uh, I ask you a, a, a few specific questions about your memoir. Uh, I I, I want to know also how the experience of writing this memoir again it's called an improvised life if it is i mean i think sometimes when people write memoirs they just sit down and they write all of this stuff which they already know and understand and for other people when they sit down and write a memoir it is really an experience of untangling and and under, gaining new understanding just in the act of writing the memoir i wonder for you what this what the experience of writing this memoir was was like. I mean, did you end up answering questions about yourself and the life of an actor and so on uh, as you wrote it, or was it not not really that kind of experience? No, it wasn't that kind of experience. At all. I didn't. I had no intention to write a memoir altogether. Uh, what happened was in, about two thirds of the way through the book, I start talking about the uh, my the workshops I teach periodically, and the the one we did at the uh, Native American college in Santa Fe was was so moving, uh, an extraordinarily moving experience that I, I had to write about it right away and, because I didn't want to forget it and exactly the way it happened. Uh, so I, I wrote that and then just put it away. And then in the next year or two, a couple of other events took place in the workshops that were, again, so deeply moving. And uh, and I felt important that uh, I, I started writing them down. And three of them are in the book, uh, like the, the one of the IAIA here, the the, uh, the Native American College, and the one about Billy who shoots her husband. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know if you've read that. Oh yes. Uh, and then the one about the woman who felt she couldn't be funny in Hawaii. Uh, and then I I just found myself circling around that and writing it. It started spiraling around that material, and I wrote this whole section about how I came to teach the workshops and uh, and uh, what the workshops consisted of, and then I just kept going, and and it just uh, it kind of wrote itself. Hmm. Well, I'm for, I'm for one glad that uh, you you have uh, ended up uh, even in spite of your <laughs> intentions undertaking this. Uh, I'm speaking today on the morning show with Alan Arkin, and his memoir is called "An Improvised Life." Um, you begin this book with uh, an absolutely wonderful little story, Isn't that and a it's great story? oh, and it's one of many that involve music. And I happen to be in uh, my other life uh, a music professor, so I I especially appreciated some of the real insightful things you have to say about music. But I wonder if you would mind uh, sharing with our listeners this uh, this story that involves the uh, the very talented and much missed. Madeline Kahn. Yeah. Uh, well, Madeline, I, I was working on a film with Madeline Kahn uh, a long time ago, 
And uh, we were sitting on the lawn between takes, a beautiful estate in upstate New York. And uh, I, I started thinking about the, the enormous amount of talent she had and in so many areas. Uh, she, was, she was a brilliant pianist. She had a, a, an operatic voice. She could have she been an opera singer very, very easily. I was in a production of Candide with her. And I, I, I can't imagine a more difficult uh, part. I'm sure you know the, uh, the Kunigunde part. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's an extraordinarily difficult part. She did it with ease. And she's a brilliant comedian. She was a great actress. And I started thinking about it. And I asked her after a few minutes. I said, Madeline, what was your what was your initial impulse? What did you start out wanting to do? And she couldn't remember. So I tried to prompt her. I said, Was it acting? She said, No. I said, Singing? She said, Well, not really. Playing the piano? No. Being a comedian? She said, No, no. no. So there so had to have been some initial thing that. Uh, got you started. And she thought and thought, she said, well, she said, I used to listen to a lot of music. And then she paused and then she said, and that's what I wanted to be. And uh, I, I, I didn't understand what she was saying, so I prompted her. I said, what do you, I don't know what you mean. She said, I, I wanted to be the music. And uh, I, it sounded as if she'd never formulated that thought before, but it, uh, it hit me like a thunderbolt, and I realized that that was, I think, what most people who go into the arts uh, really want to be, you know, that the doing it is not nearly as as fulfilling, first of all, as, as seeing something or hearing something that's extraordinary, and then second of all, every once in a while, you do have the incredible sense that you are what you're trying to do, that you're not doing it, but that you are it. And uh, I, that, 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 that statement kind of fueled uh, all of my, uh, all of my interests, all of my, uh, all of my, and I, and I had wished that somebody had said that to me or formulated that idea early on. It would have made things a, a lot simpler. <laughs> I think it is. Uh, you you tell a story about one of the first times. I think I'm I'm quite sure it was. It was, in fact, the very first time you experienced that on stage, uh, something which at another point in the telling of it you call this experience of flow. Yeah. Uh, I lived for uh, uh, th- this moment when the part played me, yeah. and I was completely out of the way. Uh, and maybe you could tell our listeners about that and, and also about, in a sense, the kind of powerlessness you felt in that moment. Yeah, but it was a glorious powerlessness. Right, right. Uh, it, it was uh, the powerlessness of surrendering to an event that was bigger than I was. Uh, and I, I, I guess it takes a certain kind of courage. Yeah, athletes, I, I talk about it. Uh, the first time I ever heard the term for that experience was, uh, was from the athletic world, where they talk about being in the zone. Um, but I realized that I had that that I have been many times on stage in the zone where the part is playing me and uh, I'm just out of the way uh, watching, watching this event take place. It's a, and the way I described it for many years was by saying, by saying it's as if I was 20 feet above the stage looking down at the performance going on, looking down at my work and being powerless to do anything about it and, and happy because it was going better that way than anything I had ever planned. Um, Athletes, athletes talk about it as being uh, in a place where they can't make
make mistakes, where time slows down, where they know what everybody in the field is doing. Um, and it doesn't last very long. And, and I've talked to people who have, have even been in the stands watching, for example, a basketball game or, or a baseball game. And when that happens to a, a person, you, the, he, the, the, these fans have said that you can feel it throughout the entire auditorium. You can feel that some kind of magic is, uh, is happening before your eyes. And uh, I, uh, I study a lot of Eastern philosophy, and I've been, I, uh, I work in those modes to a great extent. And the teacher I've been working with for the past five years said to me, he says, said, you know, that's not an as if. He said, that's a real place in your consciousness, that sense of split. Uh, that sense of, uh, he says, that's uh, kind of an exalted place to be, but uh, it's w- what a lot of yogis and uh, and monks work for. And uh, I, I think the difference is that they work for it in their lives, while athletes and actors work for it in their craft, um, which is a lot, and not as difficult as a craft is, it's a lot easier. Mm. Uh, As you describe this, I'm especially fascinated by one observation you make. Uh, If I I can just read a a line or two. You said, uh, when I walked onto that stage, I became the character. No, that's the wrong way of describing it. When I walked onto the stage, it was as if the character told me to get out of the way and mind my own business. The character took on a life of his own with an immediacy and a purpose that had little to do with any of the preparation I had done. My voice changed. My posture changed. The line readings that I'd become used to went out the window. My timing became different, and my relationships on stage with the other actors were more real than anything in my own life. The woman playing my wife was truly my own beloved wife. I understood her better than I understood myself, and the war I was returning from was real and oppressive and frightening. And more importantly, these details all took care of themselves in one sweep— without my attending to any of them. I especially am intrigued by that very last sentence, the idea that there could be all of these details falling perfectly into place, and yet somehow you're not doing the the placement of those details or the implementation of those details, that they are somehow just... Well, uh, you, appear- must, you must play at least one instrument if you're a professor of music. I'm, I'm actually a... Um, well, I play piano, but I'm a voice teacher, actually. Oh, I that experience uh, in singing or playing an instrument you had to have had if you have any devotion at all to to music and and to your instrument and and in your voice you must have had that experience at some point or another haven't you oh yes absolutely the 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 sense where the hard work that you once did uh sort of yeah. liberates you to experience something else. But I think in many cases it f- it feels like you're maybe effortlessly remembering all the things that you've prepared yourself to do. And what you describe here is something almost even more exciting in which it propels you into utterly new experiences, a whole different plane. Um, I can't I, believe you haven't had that experience. Well, maybe, maybe I have. Maybe I just don't describe it as well as, 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 as you do. But I mean, you, you describe something here that's obviously truly thrilling and also something that uh, you've only had in your grasp. Uh, I mean, here and there, I mean, it's not something that can be summoned up, at least the way you describe this first experience. No, I, I think that's where the, the word grace comes in. You know, I think that the only thing you can do is do with grace 
great devotion, the work that leads up to that experience. I, what, what I found is that, that devotion is a key to the uh, anybody having that experience. I don't think an athlete can find himself in the zone unless he's deeply devoted to his, to his sport. Uh, I don't think a music musician can do it or an actor can do it unless there's a lot of devotion and, and hard work that's gone into it. Um, I, I, and I talk in the book about people outside of the arts having that experience, too. Uh, and as, as I got more comfortable with it, it's, it's become a kind of passion of mine to find out more and more about this state, uh, which well, I was in analysis for a while, many, many years ago, and I described this state to my, my doctor, and it took me right out of analysis. I never wanted to go back. He said, yes, Freud describes that as a state called regression in service of the ego. And I thought that was such a mm. flimsy, threadbare uh, uh, vision of this, what, what to me was in a, a really exalted place that I, I, I got fed up with, uh, with therapy, right. that kind of therapy anyway, hmm. uh, as a result of it. Well, I, I've, seen, I've seen people get into this place in every conceivable walk of life, and the key to their having that experience is, is devotion. That, that, they, they, a parent can have it with a kid, knowing what's going to happen with a kid, being aware of what's going on with the kid when they're not around, even even physically around. Um, it has to have you have to be devoted as a parent. Mm. I've seen teachers have that experience. I've seen. I spoke to a, a doctor the other day about this experience. A deeply devoted physician, and I said, Have you ever had the experience when? I talk about this in the book, but it happened again three or four days ago. I said, have you ever had the experience when somebody walked in and you knew what was wrong with them before they opened their mouths and it wasn't visible and you sometimes didn't even know what the condition was or hadn't researched that much? He says, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, and that's the same thing. It's exactly the same situation. Uh, it comes out of a deep devotion to a craft that starts tapping into things that, you don't, you don't, you don't, you have no idea where they come from or, mm. or how. Uh, As but it's you, an exalted place, and uh, I, I, it's become a, a kind of passion of mine. The uh, exploring this this uh, part of our consciousness and other parts that that don't get a lot of attention. Right, and of course, anyone who gets to experience this for themselves is is so blessed. I I think I do experience this a lot as a musician and 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 honestly I hate to say uh perhaps take it for granted where right. I experience it and appreciate it most profoundly is as a teacher just the other day teaching my opera history class and and uh and sort of getting on a roll talking about the reforms of Gluck which on the surface didn't even seem like it would be an exciting day. And uh, you'd have to ask the students, of course, but for me, it was maybe the single most thrilling day I've ever had as a teacher, th- that sense of flow, that, that, that I was saying everything I wanted to say and far more, I mean, in ways that I didn't even know I could say them, and, and this sense of tapping into this, this deeper place inside yourself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was incredibly yeah, that's a beautiful description of it, yeah. You have to either love teaching or gluck or a combination of them in order for that to take place. <laughs> we're speaking with Alan Arkin, and we're talking about his memoir called An Improvised Life. Uh, as you mentioned, you kind of began this talking about the work you've done in these uh, 
improvisation workshops, and it uh, ended up expanding into uh, a, a book which also encompasses uh, your life and many of uh, the interesting things about you. I wonder if you could just say a word about uh, the kind of child you were and the fact that you had, at, at what you describe at one point, an unquenchable need to turn myself into something other than what I was, and from a very, very young age. There are other places in the book you talk about how children have this capacity, uh, but I think you're describing something that maybe isn't all that common, to be so uh, consumed by this kind of interest at a very young age. Well, you know, I, the truth of the matter, well, if I can paraphrase for a second, uh, people used to say to me, God, you're so talented with accents. You, 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 that's such a brilliant talent. And I said, well, thank you very much, but you know what the talent that every child on the face of the planet has, and then they lose it when they don't need it anymore. Uh, because if that wasn't the case, no child would speak like this to the people in the surrounding area. Uh, kids are perfect mimics until they learn what they need to know. Uh, they need to... They, 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 uh, they, they imitate the, uh, the sounds they hear around them. They end up sounding exactly like their parents, or did until recently when television and radio started taking over. Uh, you could tell, I mean, in, in England there were how many, there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of dialogues, dialects. The uh, people would speak like the surrounding area that they lived in. I mean, the area could be like a 10-mile Ten miles in diameter, and so that everybody, every kid has that uh, that ability. But what happened with me is I I didn't I didn't feel comfortable or didn't have uh, I guess a role model that I felt comfortable with. So I kept exploring until I found a, a series of role models, which uh, what ended up being uh, anybody anybody who was in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that was a kind of aberration, and, uh, uh, and and I feel like the same thing is true with with, with the needing to to act at such an early age. Uh, it happens with a, a lot of kids; they don't feel like they're getting enough attention. I was alone a lot, uh, wandering out the streets of New York a lot when I was six and seven years old, uh, taking subways and and streetcars by myself. So I, that was the way I passed my time. Hmm. You tell a, Oh, absolutely. You tell a couple of interesting childhood stories, and, and I especially want to hear, uh, hear you talk a little about the second of them. These are two experiences you remember from your childhood where you gained some insight into, let's say, the craft of, of, of acting in theater. The, the, the second story you tell is about something uh, that happened back uh, in, in your apartment when your mother was trying to comfort a, a distraught friend uh, yeah. crying about some kind of terrible uh, misfortune or tragedy. And uh, you are quietly observing this scene from off to the side. Yeah. I, I wonder if you could just say a word about uh, maybe kind of fill in the blanks of, of, of what you observed and, and learned from this uh, little encounter. Yeah, I was sitting, I, I must have been about six, maybe seven at the most, and I was watching this woman's histrionics, and uh, I, I found myself saying, uh, I'm not moved by this performance, and I tried to figure out why. Why is it not, why is it not moving? And I, I came to the conclusion, I said, because she's, she's crying so much, and there's so much self-pity there that there's not enough 
in and, and feel anything for her, uh, which was kind of, I guess, precocious for an acting student, but for a human being, it was such a great thing. Uh, uh, yeah, I was treat. I was I treated life as if it was a movie, uh, and I did that a lot, hmm. uh, or a play. I, I examined people's behavior as if uh, I was watching a play or a movie. Right. Uh, you tell another story uh, a few pages later that I think speaks very much to the same reality that, uh, in order for someone to be most profoundly moved by what we might say, whether it's real life or or on a stage in a theatrical situation, uh, that there is something to be said for treating those emotions carefully. And it's a story that involves the great uh, gospel singer Mahalia Jackson and uh, a contrast which you drew between her and someone else you watched perform. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, I was a a folk singer for a few years in L.A., a way of Picking up lunch money, and uh, uh, and uh, I uh, on the same circuit was a a, a very very impressive uh, black singer woman uh, who uh, got an enormous amount of attention. She had a very very powerful voice and sang of the plight of her people a lot, a lot of gospel stuff. And I was not moved, and I thought there was something wrong with her. I thought it was callous person because I was not moved by her work. And then about six months later, I guess, uh, I heard Mahalia Jackson sing for the first time, and I was just deeply, deeply affected by her to the point where I started crying the first time I heard her. And I sat myself down and I said, wait a minute, what's the, what's the difference here? It's, not the, it, it's too easy to say I like one and I don't like the other. I did, I did a lot of an- analysis even in those early days, of why I liked something, why something affected me, why it didn't. And I finally came to the conclusion, after a lot of mulling, that the first woman was singing her pain and uh, getting rid of a lot of it, but dumping it on me. Um, and it was slightly uncomfortable. I didn't feel like I needed to, that. I, I, I didn't feel like I needed the guilt of that experience to be washed over me, nor did I feel I had the the ability to stop up her pain. Uh, with Mahalia Jackson, I felt all the same pain, all the same sense of uh, what she had to have gone through in her life, uh, with being a black person in this uh, in this culture, uh, in the uh, growing up in the twenties and thirties, uh, what that had to have been like. But her, her singing, uh, I recognized, was a release from that pain. It was a joyous release from the pain, and in the joy was all of the same uh, uh, pain that the other woman had had some, but but it was it, it was not not hidden, but but over uh, overshadowed by the by the joy of the act of singing. <laughs> uh, it, I, I hope that's clear. Absolutely, I, I love that story so much. And uh, one sentence you write that I think says it so well: her pain and suffering. This is Mahalia Jackson. Her pain and suffering were present in her singing. There was no way for her to escape. In every note she sang, it was clear that she'd had a huge burden to carry, but she was singing to rise above it. Yeah. And at the end of that paragraph, you say, "I wanted to be like Mahalia Jackson." 
And it took me it took me decades before I could get to that place or even approach it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, acting was was not comfortable for me for a long, long time. It took me decades to get to a place where uh, I could I could just have fun. Mm-hmm. Of course. We're speaking with Alan Arkin. We're talking about his memoir, An Improvised Life. Uh, Interestingly enough, when you achieve some of your first tremendous fame uh, and success on the stage, uh, on the Broadway stage, uh, it is something of a difficult experience. That is when suddenly, seemingly overnight, you were (laughs) this really, really big deal. This is after you've been part of Second City, so it's not that you haven't tasted any success, but this is a leading role in a Broadway play, Enter Laughing, written by Carl Reiner, uh, a smash hit. But uh, explain to our listeners how the very success that you experienced uh, when this play proved to be so successful proved to be quite a complication for you as an actor, I think it's in some respects a, a very valuable cautionary tale. Yeah, well, I got a couple of cautionary tales in there too. The, 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 there are dangers in the in the profession, as there are in in, the, in most professions, I guess. One way or other. But this, yeah, what happened? Well, I became an overnight star. When before the reviews came out, my name was in the tiny little letters at the bottom of the. The ads, and then the, the the day afterwards, my name was on top of the on top of the uh, the title of the play, and people came to a, a large, at least in part, to to see me, and it threw me for a complete loop because I my uh, my whole reason, one of my main reasons for being an actor was to hide on stage, to be other people, and to pretend I was somebody else, and to and to be honest and truthful enough about that so that people didn't have a clue as to who I was. Now, all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I was up there. It was me. I mean, I'd walk on and I'd get a hand, which just threw me for a loop. Um, it was, I guess a lot of people who, for whom stardom was a, uh, was a goal, uh, that would be the end of, the, end of the line. They, they just, you got, you've got that, now all you have to do is try to stay there. But for me, it was a, I felt as if my identity, my identity as the character had been ripped away. And for my next two years on Broadway, I never found any kind of comfort in trying to find a way to, to get uh, back to that sense of hiding behind the character. <laughs> Probably a lack in me somehow, but I, don't, uh, but it, it, I never got comfortable on stage again. Uh, some of that story actually brings to mind the the chapter right before in which you talk about uh, your work with uh, Second City. And uh, one of the things, of course, we need to make sure people understand is that when you first signed on with Second City, you called it uh, a hole-in-the-wall theater. <laughs> I mean, it, it, uh, it, it in a sense... Well, it actually wasn't, but that was my fear when I got on the train to go out to Chicago to work there, because... Uh, I, I'd never done a cabaret before. I'd never worked in a in a place that served uh, drinks or or uh, sandwiches, and that's what I expected. It was actually a very nice place, uh, but it was a bar. But oddly enough, with all the drinks being served and the, and the food and and it was the, they were the most attentive audiences I've ever experienced ever. The what? The most what? Attentive audiences I've I've ever experienced. Interesting. You, yeah. yeah. You 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 speak very 
write very positively about your experience with Second City, and one of the things you you talk about is how you so appreciated the fact that one was allowed to uh, experiment and, and grow and fail. Yeah. That and 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 that is so at odds with American culture in general, huh. and and even in the entertainment business. Uh, so often, failure is not an option, but uh, yeah. it, it was with uh, with a group like Second City. Yeah, and and, and as a result, we uh, we learned things that would have taken ten, twenty years to learn. One year's experience at Second City was like being uh, being out in the world and 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 working in odd plays for twenty years. Uh, every night we played ten, fifteen, twenty different characters. Uh, we did every conceivable kind of theater, pantomime, uh, songs, operas, uh, uh, old jokes. Uh, it, we'd invent new scenes every night. We, we'd have to run backstage during intermission and invent the whole second half of the show. Uh, we'd be sweating and terrified every night. <laughs> uh, the, the, the abilities of youth, I couldn't do it now. Hmm. As, you, uh, as you undertook responsibility as a director... You began to uh, learn even more about this craft, about which you obviously already knew knew a great deal and were so good at. Uh, it's in that chapter when you talk about uh, your life as a director that you 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 share this insight, which I think is so profound. We live in a culture where everything is selling. I watch TV and I don't see events. I see people selling me events. The newscasters are not reporting the news. They are dramatizing it, selling it, selling themselves as good reporters. They're making the news interesting. And on and on you go describing this scenario in which everything is being sold. And in a sense, this speaks very directly to what you were talking about before, uh, that experience of, of letting go and of not selling oneself in one's performance. That seems like that speaks to the heart of of what uh in your in your mind uh, being the, the 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 best actor one can be is all about yeah yeah very very much so uh to the point where when i i, I talk about this a little bit too, that once i'm auditioning actors i'll see actors get up and i I'll, I'll feel that they're talented but something's missing or they're or they're pushing and i'll say to them uh, and i this has happened on countless occasions. I'll say that was very good, and I'll do it without the acting. And of the many, many times I've said that to actors, there's never been an occasion where the actor did not know what I was talking about. <laughs> they always know exactly what I mean, and they breathe a sigh of relief, and, and, and I can see by their expression that they're saying, oh, I don't have to... I don't have to sell it. I just have to do it. I have to do what I was trained for. I don't have to just sell it. When you uh, when you do your improvisation uh, workshops, uh, you you tell us about often the first exercise involves this very uh, maybe surprising word of instruction from you. I don't want to see anything interesting or anything creative. Yeah. And of course, to a casual, careless observer from the side, that might not seem like it makes any sense. But of course. When well, actually, t- it gets a laugh every time I say it, and I have to say it twice, and the second time I say it, I'm not joking. I'm dead serious. I don't want to see anything creative, and I don't want to see anything. Just just play ball. We, when we play ball for 10 minutes, uh, with 20 people in the room, we're playing ball with an imaginary ball, and I keep changing the kind of ball it is. 
up being a balloon or a cat or a, or a clothes basket. And by the end of the 10 minutes, everybody's having a ball and, and being enormously creative. And uh, I, I, I uh, asked him when the exercise was over, I said, uh, what was my instruction? And uh, they'll put their, they'll, everybody will look very sheepish. <laughs> and uh, they say, not to be creative, not to be interesting. I said, what happened? We were creative. We were interesting. They're very sheepishly and, and embarrassedly. You say, I said, why? And most of the time, people don't know why. Uh, but every once in a while, somebody knows, and it's the fact that it's our nature. It's our nature that the aberration is not to be creative. Uh, I think people give a wrong impression most of the time of what they think creativity is. Creativity, most of the time, I think people think is what other people do, uh, or something that is a mountain you have to climb in order to get to a place that's called creative. But I, but but creativity belongs to everybody. You can be a plumber and be creative. You can be a uh, you can be a, a a checker on a on a uh, on a on a, on a line uh, on a on a food line. I've seen enormously creative checkers on on, on uh, at, Ho- at Whole Foods, for example, here in town. When they take their job seriously and they want to meet the public and they want to have have a nice day and insist that other people have a nice day. That becomes creative. Hmm. Uh, parents can be creative. Anybody can be creative, but most of the time people think that it's a province that belongs to special people. It's not true. Hmm. Uh, in, your, in your discussion of your improvisation w- workshops, you also uh, have something really interesting to say about the difference between chaos and anarchy. Yeah. And I think this is uh, something that really helps us... Uh, sort of re-examine two terms that we tend to be really sloppy with and, and use interchangeably. What do you see as the essential difference between chaos and anarchy, uh, well, at least in this a, arena? There may not be a definition that holds up in either Webster or uh, the scientific community, but for me, the difference between chaos and anarchy, and I'll see it a lot on, in the workshops, uh, to me, chaos is watching the, the uh, endless variety that you see around it, you, 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 in nature. You see it in the shapes of mountains. You see it in the, in the, in the behavior of, of animals. You see it in... in it, it, look, it looks... It, there's something beautiful about chaos. It, it looks like there's a purpose that's, that's, that's unfathomable and indescribable. But it looks like there's a purpose to it, and it looks like there's a unity to it for me. Anarchy is, a, to me, every man for himself, which... It's at a certain point in development, I think, is, is legitimate, but it's against all the basic laws of nature, which is that everything functions uh, along with everything else in a beautiful way. So that I, I can see that on stage. I'll, I'll, in the middle of the workshop sometimes, I'll have a scene in which there will be 10, 12 people uh, who have never met each other until the, that morning, and there'll be... Uh, Twelve people on stage in a very complicated scene uh, where several conversations are going on at the same time. And if, if everybody is, has a, comes on the stage with a purpose, you, it's, it's an extraordinary view of chaos, extraordinarily beautiful. It looks like a director has worked on it for about a week. Uh, if somebody comes on and either forgets their purpose or has a purpose that has nothing to do with what the exercise is about, the whole thing 
falls into anarchy. Uh, and I don't have to listen to the dialogue. I don't have to pay attention to the what the actors are doing. All I have to do is watch the physical motion on stage, which is when, when it's chaos, is absolutely gorgeous. And people in the workshop sit with their mouths open and, and look at something that, without any preparation or, or anybody knowing each other, uh, it turns into a, a beautiful, beautiful event. Hmm. And uh, earlier in the book, as you're talking about your work as a director and how so often an actor will come to you at some point in the process sort of at their wit's end. And and what you just described can also be so true on an individual level, even within a single actor. You write, what I have to impress upon the actor each time it happens is that this loss of control, this confusion, this being really stopped in one's tracks without a clear place to go is riveting. It's a place of pure potential, a place where anything can happen, a wonderfully deep and empty place. <laughs> Wonderfully put. That That sounds pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) It is good. It is good. And, of course, we're just scratching the surface of this wonderful book, which uh, includes uh, far more insights into uh, the life of an actor uh, than we have. Than anybody would possibly want to hear. Oh, no, I think there's much more to explore, and uh, we leave that to our listeners to uh, take this book in hand. I wonder in our last minute or so if you could um, share an interesting, very personal moment from the book uh, in which you watch uh, one of your three sons, who are also actors, you 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 see your son Adam in a performance, and uh, you come come back to uh, his dressing room afterwards uh, with a moment uh, that is uh, a mix of pride and sadness for you, which I think also says something about uh, the long journey that one experiences as an actor and director and father. Yeah. Well, he he. Uh... I was living in New York at the time, and he was coming into Broadway with a play. They were having out-of-town tryouts, and he, he used to call me for for help all the time, which was a role I liked. And he said, "Dad, please come. Can you come up and possible? Can you possibly come up tonight and look at the play?" I said, "I think I'm terrible in it, and I think the play is terrible. Can you come up and see if you can give me any help?" And I put on my dad cap, and I said, "Yeah, sure, I'll come up." In a, just a couple of hours, I had lost my place as a mentor in Adam's life. <laughs> I was now a colleague. Yeah. A bittersweet moment. One of many wonderful, insightful moments in this book, again called An Improvised Life, a Memoir. It is a paperback now from Da Capo Press and well worth reading. Whether or not one even has any interest in the craft of acting, uh, there is so much to explore and uh, to experience. And Alan Arkin, I am so honored to have had this uh, chance to speak with you about your wonderful book. Very well, best wishes to you. Delightful to 
meet you or to talk to you. I hope we do it again sometime. The preceding morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2011. Alan Arkin passed away on June 29th at the age of 89. He will be missed. I'm Gregory Berg.